This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marion Brown, Toronto, Canada. The Trimmed Lamp by O. Henry. Chapter 22 The Country of Illusion. The cunning writer will choose an indefinable subject, for he can then set down his theory of what it is, and next, at length, his conception of what it is not, and lo, his paper is covered. Therefore let us follow the prolix and unmappable trail into that mooted country Bohemia. Granger, sub-editor of Doc's magazine, closed his roll-top desk, put on his hat, walked into the hall, punched the down button, and waited for the elevator. Granger's day had been trying. The chief had tried to ruin the magazine a dozen times by going against Granger's ideas for running it. A lady whose grandfather had fought with McClellan had brought a portfolio of poems in person. Granger was curator of the Lion's House of the magazine. That day he had lunched an Arctic explorer, a short-story writer, and the famous conductor of a slaughterhouse expose. Consequently, his mind was in a whirl of icebergs, malpassant, and trichinosis. But there was a surcease and a recourse. There was Bohemia. He would seek distraction there, and let's see, he would call by for Mary Adrian. Half an hour later he threaded his way like a Brazilian orchid hunter through the palm forest in the tiled entrance of the Idelia apartment house. One day the christeners of apartment houses and the cognometers of sleeping cars will meet, and there will be some jealousy and sanguinary knifing. The clerk breathed Granger's name so languidly into the house telephone that it seemed it must surely drop from sheer inertia down to the janitor's regions, but at length it soared dilatorily up to Miss Adrian's ear. Certainly Mr. Granger was to come up immediately. A colored maid with an Eliza crossing the ice expression opened the door of the apartment for him. Granger walked sideways down the narrow hall. A bunch of burnt umber hair and sea-green eye appeared in the crack of a door. A long, white, undraped arm came out, barring the way. "'So glad you came, Ricky, instead of any of the others,' said the eye. "'Light a cigarette and give it to me. "'Going to take me to dinner? Fine. "'Go into the front room till I finish dressing. "'But don't sit in your usual chair. "'There's pie in it. Meringue. "'Kappelman threw it at Reeves last evening while he was reciting.' Sophie has just come to straighten up. Is it lit? Thanks. There's scotch on the mantel. Oh, no, it isn't. There's sartreuse. Ask Sophie to find some. I won't be long. Granger escaped the meringue. As he waited, his spirits sank still lower. The atmosphere of the room was as vapid as a zephyr wandering over a Vesuvian lava bed. Relics of some feast lay about the room, scattered in places where even a prowling cat would have been surprised to find them. A straggling cluster of deep red roses in a marmalade jar bowed their heads over tobacco ashes and unwashed goblets. A chafing dish stood on the piano. A leaf of sheet music supported a stack of sandwiches in a chair. Mary came in, dressed and radiant. Her gown was of that thin black fabric, whose name, through the change of a single vowel, seems to summon visions ranging between the extremes of man's experience. Spelled with an E, it belongs to Gallic witchery and diaphanous dreams. 
With an A it drapes lamentation and woe. That evening they went to the Café André, and as people would confide to you in a whisper that André's was the only truly bohemian restaurant in town, it may be well to follow them. André began his professional career as a waiter in a Bowery ten-cent eating-house. Had you seen him there, you would have called him tough, to yourself, not aloud, for he would have soaked you as quickly as he would have soaked his thumb in your coffee. He saved money and started a basement table d'hôte in 8th or Ninth Street. One afternoon André drank too much absinthe. He announced to his startled family that he was the Grand Lama of Tibet, therefore requiring an empty audience hall in which to be worshipped. He moved all the tables and chairs from the restaurant into the backyard, wrapped a red tablecloth around himself, and sat on a stepladder for a throne. When the diners began to arrive, Madame, in a flurry of despair, laid cloths and ushered them, trembling outside. Between the tables, clotheslines were stretched, bearing the family wash. A party of Bohemia hunters greeted the artistic innovation with shrieks and acclamations of delight. That week's washing was not taken in for two years. When André came to his senses, he had the menu printed on stiffly starched cuffs and served the ices in little wooden tubs. Next he took down his sign and darkened the front of the house. When you went there to dine, you fumbled for an electric button and pressed it. A lookout slid open a panel in the door, looked at you suspiciously, and asked if you were acquainted with Senator Herodotus Q. McMilligan of the Chickasaw Nation. If you were, you were admitted and allowed to dine. If you were not, you were admitted and allowed to dine. There you have one of the abiding principles of Bohemia. When André had accumulated $20,000, he moved uptown near Broadway in the fierce light that beats upon the throne down. There we find him and leave him, with customers in pearls and automobile veils, striving to catch his excellently graduated nod of recognition. There is a large round table in the northeast corner of André's at which six can sit. To this table Granger and Mary Adrian made their way. Kappelman and Reeves were already there, and Miss Tooker, who designed the May cover for the Ladies' Not-at-Home magazine, and Mrs. Pothunter, who never drank anything but black and white highballs, being in mourning for her husband, who, oh, I've forgotten what he did, died like as not. Spaghetti-weary reader, wouldst take one penny in the slot peep into the fair land of Bohemia? Then look, and when you think you have seen it, you have not and it is neither thimble-riggery nor astigmatism. The walls of the Café André were covered with original sketches by the artist who furnished much of the colour and sound of the place. Fair woman furnished the theme of the bulk of the drawings. When you say sirens and siphons, you come near to estimating the alliterative atmosphere of André's. First, I want you to meet my friend, Miss Adrian. Miss Tooker and Mrs. Pothunter you already know. While she tucks in the fingers of her elbow gloves, you shall have her daguerreotype. So faint and uncertain shall the portrait be. Age, somewhere between twenty-seven and high-neck evening dresses. Camaraderie in large bunches, whatever the fearful word may mean. Habitat, anywhere from Seattle to Diero de Fugo. Temperament, uncharted. She let Weave squeeze her hand after he recited one of his poems, but she counted the change after sending him out with a dollar to buy some pickled pig's feet, 
Deportment 75 out of a possible 100. Morals, 100. Mary was one of the princesses of Bohemia. In the first place, it was a royal and a daring thing to have been named Mary. There are fifty Fifines and Heloises to one Mary in the country of illusion. Now her gloves are tucked in. Miss Tooker has assumed a June poster pose. Mrs. Pothunter has bitten her lips to make the red show. Reeves has several times felt his coat to make sure that his latest poem is in the pocket. It had been neatly typewritten, but he had copied it on the backs of letters with a pencil. Kappelman is underhandedly watching the clock. It is ten minutes to nine. When the hour comes, it is to remind him of a story. Synopsis. A French girl says to her suitor, Did you ask my father for my hand at nine o'clock this morning, as you said you would? I did not, he replies. At nine o'clock I was fighting a duel with swords in the Bois de Boulogne. Coward, she hisses. The dinner was ordered. You know how the Bohemian feast of reason keeps up with the courses. Humor with the oysters, wit with the soup, repartee with the entree, brag with the roast, knocks for Whistler and Kipling with the salad, songs with the coffee, the slapsticks with the cordials. Between Miss Adrian's eyebrows was the pucker that showed the intense strain it requires to be at ease in Bohemia. Pat must come each sally, mo an epigram. Every second of deliberation upon a reply costs you a bay leaf. Fine as a hair, a line began to curve from her nostrils to her mouth. To hold her own, not a chance must be missed. A sentence addressed to her must be as a piccolo. Each word of it a stop, while she must be prepared to seize upon and play. And she must be quicker than a Micmac Indian to paddle the light canoe of conversation away from the rocks and the rapids that flow from the Pyrian spring. For plodding reader, the handwriting on the wall in the banquet hall of Bohemia is laissez-faire. The grey ghost that sometimes peeps through the rings of smoke in that of slain old king convention. Freedom is the tyrant that holds them in slavery. As the dinner waned, hands reached for the pepper cruet rather than for the shaker of attic salt. Miss Tooker, with an elbow to business, leaned across the table toward Granger, upsetting her glass of wine. Now while you are fed and in good humor, she said, I want to make a suggestion to you about a new cover. A good idea, said Granger, mopping the tablecloth with his napkin. I'll speak to the waiter about it. Kappelman, the painter, was the cut-up. As a piece of delicate Athenian wit, he got up from his chair and waltzed down the room with a waiter. That dependent, no doubt an honest, pachydermatous, worthy, tax-paying, art-despising biped, released himself from the unequal encounter, carried his professional smile back to the dumbwaiter, and dropped it down the shaft to eternal oblivion. Reeves began to make Keats turn in his grave. Mrs. Pothunter told the story of a man who met the widow on the train. Miss Adrian hummed while it is still called a chanson in the cafés of Bridgeport. Granger edited each individual effort with his assistant editor's smile, which means, great, but you'll have to send them in through the regular channels. If I were the chief now, but you know how it is. And soon the head waiter bowed before them, desolated to relate that the closing hour had already become chronologically historical. So out all trooped into the starry midnight, filling the street with gay laughter, to be barked at by hopeful cabmen and enviously eyed by the dull inhabitants of an uninspired world. 
Granger left Mary at the elevator in the trackless palm forest of the Idelia. After he had gone, she came down again, carrying a small handbag, phoned for a cab, drove to the Grand Central Station, boarded a 12.55 commuter's train, rode four hours with her burnt umber head bobbing against the red plush back of the seat, and landed during a fresh, stinging, glorious sunrise at a deserted station, the size of a peach crate, called Crocusville. She walked a mile and clicked the latch of a gate. A bare brown cottage stood twenty yards back. An old man with a pearl-white Calvinistic face and clothes dyed blacker than a raven in a coal mine was washing his hands in a tin basin on the front porch. "'How are you, father?' said Mary timidly. "'I am as well as Providence permits, Marianne. You will find your mother in the kitchen.' In the kitchen a cryptic grey woman kissed her glacially on the forehead, and pointed out the potatoes which were not yet peeled for breakfast. Mary sat in a wooden chair and decorticated spuds with a thrill in her heart. For breakfast there were grace, cold bread, potatoes, bacon, and tea. "'You are pursuing the same avocation in the city concerning which you have advised us from time to time by letter, I trust?' said her father. "'Yes,' said Mary. "'I'm still reviewing books for the same publication.' After breakfast she helped wash the dishes, then all three sat in straight-backed chairs in the bare-floored parlour. "'It is my custom,' said the old man, on the Sabbath day, to read aloud from the great work entitled The Apology for Authorized and Set Forms of Liturgy, by the ecclesiastical philosopher and revered theologian Jeremy Taylor. "'I know it,' said Mary blissfully, folding her hands. For two hours the numbers of the great Jeremy rolled forth, like the notes of an oratorio played on the violoncello, Mary sat gloating in the new sensation of racking physical discomfort that the wooden chair brought her. Perhaps there is no happiness in life so perfect as the martyrs. Jeremy's minor chords soothed her like the music of a tom-tom. Why, oh why, she said to herself, does someone not write words to it? At eleven they went to the church in Crocusville. The back of the pine bench, on which she sat, had a penitential forward tilt that would have brought St. Simeon down in jealousy from his pillar. The preacher singled her out, and thundered upon her vicarious head the damnation of the world. At each side of her an adamant parent held her rigidly to the bar of judgment. An aunt crawled upon her neck, but she dared not move. She lowered her eyes before the congregation. A hundred-eyed cerebus that watched the gates through which her sins were fast thrusting her. Her soul was filled with a delirious, almost a fanatic joy, for she was out of the clutch of the tyrant, freedom. Dogma and creed pinioned her with beneficent cruelty, as steel braces bind the feet of a crippled child. She was hedged, adjured, shackled, shored up, straight-jacketed, silenced, ordered. When they came out the minister stopped to greet them, Mary could only hang her head and answer, Yes, sir, and no, sir, to his questions. When she saw that the other women carried their hymn-books at their waists with their left hands, she blushed and moved hers there, too, from her right. She took the three o'clock train back to the city. At nine she sat at the round table for dinner in the Café André. Nearly the same crowd was there. "'Where have you been to-day?' asked Mrs. Pothunter. "'I phoned to you at twelve. I have been away in Bohemia.' "'answered Mary with a mystic smile. "'There, Mary has given it away. "'She has spoiled my climax. 
for I was to have told you that Bohemia is nothing more than the little country in which you do not live. If you try to obtain citizenship in it, at once the court and retinue pack the royal archives and treasures and move away beyond the hills. It is a hillside that you turn your head to peer at from the windows of the through express. At exactly half-past eleven, Kappelman, deceived by a new softness and slowness of repost in Perry in Mary Adrian, tried to kiss her. Instantly she slapped his face with such strength and cold fury that he shrank down sobered with the flaming red print of a hand across his leering features, and all sounds ceased, as when the shadows of great wings came upon a flock of chattering sparrows. One had broken the paramount law of sham bohemia, the law of laissez-faire. The shock came not from the blow delivered, but from the blow received, with the effect of a schoolmaster entering the playroom of his pupils was that blow administered. Women pulled down their sleeves and laid prim hands against their ruffled side-locks. Men looked at their watches. There was nothing of the effect of a brawl about it. It was purely the still panic produced by the sound of an axe of the fly-cop, conscience hammering at the gambling-house doors of the heart. With their punctilious putting on of cloaks, with their exaggerated pretense, of not having seen or heard, with their stammering exchange of unaccustomed formalities, with their false show of a light-hearted exit, I must take leave of my bohemian party. Mary has robbed me of my climax, and she may go. But I am not defeated. Somewhere there exists a great vault, miles broad and miles long, more capacious than the champagne caves of France. In that vault are stored the anticlimaxes that should have been tagged to all the stories that have been told in the world. I shall cheat that vault of one deposit. Minnie Brown with her aunt came from Crocusville down to the city to see the sights, and because she has escorted me to fishless trout streams, and exhibited me to open plumbed waterfalls, and broken my camera while I jollied in her village, I must escort her to the hives containing the synthetic clover honey of town." Especially did the custom-made Bohemia charm her. The spaghetti wound its tendrils about her heart. The free red wine drowned her belief in the existence of commercialism in the world. She was dared and enchanted by the rugose wit that can be churned out of California claret. But one evening I got her away from the smell of halibut and linoleum long enough to read to her the manuscript of this story, which then ended before her entrance into it. I read it to her because I knew that all of the printing presses in the world were running to try to please her and some others, and I asked her about it. I didn't quite catch the trains, she said. How long was Mary in Crocusville? Ten hours and five minutes, I replied. Well, then the story may do, said Minnie, but if she had stayed there a week, Kappelman would have got his kiss. End of The Country of Illusion